We began our series in the Gospel of Luke for the season of Advent last Sunday, and we're continuing that this morning in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26 all the way through verse 56. So if you have a Bible, if you could open up to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. If you need a Bible, there's a couple people that will be walking around, and they're willing to give that to you, and uh, you'll definitely need a Bible. And so just slip up your hand, and then we'll do that for you. But before we um, dive in here, let me just uh, begin with a word of prayer. So if we all could just um, quiet our hearts before God and and approach him in prayer, that'd be great. Father, we come to you in this time and we just want to express our gratitude for your unending faithfulness to us and how no matter what we are going through, no matter what we are feeling in this moment, God, you are our one sure thing. You are our rock, you are our foundation. Lord Jesus, um, we gather here this morning under your name because of what you've done for us. Lord, if you had not come, if you had not lived in our place and died in our place and risen in our place. Uh, We wouldn't be in this room this morning if it weren't by your grace. And so we look to you and we say thank you, Lord, for your work in our lives. And we pray that work would continue this morning by your mercy, uh, through your word, into our hearts, that we might be a people that you are desiring us to be here in this place and in this time. For your glory, we pray these things. Amen. Uh, This morning, uh, we're looking at the extraordinary story, uh, the promised birth of Jesus, you know, the one that you've heard about and that the lights are up around town for, apparently, you know. Um, In the movie Elf, uh, Buddy the Elf tells the story of his journey to New York City from the North Pole. And many times he tells this story to many, many people in the movie, and he tells the story in this way. He says, Well, first I pass through the seven levels of the candy cane forest, through the sea of swirly, twirly gumdrops, and then I walked through the Lincoln Tunnel. And it is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. But everyone he encounters in New York that he tells this story to, every single person that he tells it to, they think he's crazy. Because, I mean, who's ever walked through the the land of the candy cane forest or the seven layers and the sea of swirly-whirly gumdrops and all that kind of stuff. We all go, well, that's crazy. This guy's crazy. But then what does he say? I walked through the Lincoln Tunnel and everybody goes, oh, I know what that is. And so these people think this guy's crazy, but then he all of a sudden has been to the place that they know is an actual real place. It's, it's not fiction, is it? I think the virgin birth can often feel a lot like the movie Elf to a skeptic, right? Or to an atheist or an agnostic or even to an honest Christian, It's miraculous. It doesn't happen every day, right? In fact, it's only happened once, and it will never happen again, you know? But we're here being told by Luke, he's showing us that this isn't fiction. It's history, no matter if it makes sense to you or not. We're actually given historical markers like the Lincoln Tunnel, if you will, that confront us and go, oh, what is this? Because uh, we have here King Herod in our story, a reference to him. We have the sixth month right? We have, we have real markers here. We have a place called Nazareth. We have a place called Judah. We are landed into history. It's actually difficult to believe in our own capacity, but it's what we are being confronted with this morning. 
something that has happened that really can't be explained in any other way. Uh, you guys know who Larry King is, right? You guys ever heard of Larry King, the famous interviewer? I think he was on CNN. Uh, he was once asked, he was once interviewed by somebody else, and the interview asked him, if you could interview any person in history, who would you interview? And he said, Jesus Christ. And the interviewer said, well, that's interesting. If you could only ask him one question, what would you ask him? And Larry King said, I would ask, them, I would ask him, were you really born of a virgin? And the interviewer goes, well, that's really interesting. Why would you ask him that question? And Larry King replied saying, because that would define history for me. It would define history for me. Larry King is right. This would define history. And it has defined history for millions of people, actually. But what is defined, though, is much more than history this morning. What's defined to us in our passage when you consider the Immaculate Conception here is that we are defined, we see defined here who God is and the kind of person that he has come for. That's what we see defined here. Our passage today is really hard to believe, if we're honest, but if you believe it, it's the best news that you will ever hear, if I'm just being honest with you. But you actually have to be a certain kind of person in order to receive it. So here it is. Uh, this is what we see this morning. Uh, if you want to know where we're going, we see these three different scenes in our story. It's really a lot to tackle in the amount of time we have. I'm going to do the best we can here. We have three scenes here. And the first scene, what I want us to see here is this announcement that the king is coming. And really, we have Mary's commissioning here is what you see here in this first scene. In the second scene, you have Mary and Elizabeth and their interaction. You have Mary that's being blessed. But we see here that it's really the king, he's coming, but he comes to the humble. He's coming to the overlooked. And that's what we're supposed to see. And then lastly, Mary sings a song, and we see that this king is coming to the humble people in order to save those of humble estate. And so I just want you to be considering this question this morning as we're going through this passage. Is that me? Am I of that estate? Is that, is that who I am? That's the question that I think should linger over us this morning. So let's look, verse 26 to 38, the king is coming here. In the sixth month, verse 26, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Like I said, what we see here actually is a classic commissioning that you would read in the Old Testament at a lot of different points. Um, just 
just for your own sake here, uh, you really see here an introduction. This is like what every commissioning has. Uh, a confrontation, you have a, a call here to, to, to be someone. You have reservations from Mary, then you have a reassurance. And then she's given a sign that Elizabeth is actually pregnant. And then finally this conclusion. So Mary's being commissioned here for something. What is she being commissioned here for? Well, she's being commissioned actually to fill the office of Jesus' mother, that's what she's being commissioned for here. So Gabriel, this guy, this angel, he's on his second mission from God. We saw his first mission last week. But this time, he doesn't go to the center of Jewish life. He doesn't go to a priest. He doesn't go to a temple, which is what we saw. He goes to a very insignificant town in Galilee called Nazareth, which is a very famously quoted city. We saw this in a different gospel. You've probably heard it before, where someone cries out, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? You've heard that before? Like, it's an overlooked town. This would be like you meeting someone who did something significant and great, and you're like, where are you from? And they're like, Delaware. And you're like, oh, I didn't even, I forgot about Delaware. That's one of the states. Sorry if you're from Delaware. I was trying to think this week, like, what's a place that I'm like, oh, I forgot about that place. Like, anything good come out of Delaware, you know? But um, it's kind of that sort of thing. It's an overlooked place. But more than just visiting a forgettable and overlooked place, Gabriel is actually visiting a forgettable and overlooked person. It's a teenage girl named Mary who's a virgin right? And she is legally engaged, that's what it means to be betrothed, to Joseph, who's a descendant of King David. And what's he telling her? Verse 28, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. It's the same phrase that's uttered to people like Isaac and Jacob and Moses. And here it's uttered to a teenage girl. This is, this is great so far, right? But Mary wasn't so pumped up about this announcement for some reason, because verse 29, was it say that she's troubled, by this, and she's trying to figure out what's going on. So the angel says to her again, don't be afraid, for you found favor with God. So in the matter of two sentences from the angel, Mary has been doubly assured that she has found favor with God. Well, this is, this is great. What does it mean for her to find favor with God? What's God going to do for her? What's going to happen here? What's he going to give her? What's he going to do? Well, the favor that she's found with God is much more extravagant and profound than we ever could really comprehend, that we could ever even dream up. Verse 31, you are going to conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you recall his name Jesus, which is the Hebrew name of Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Again, names that are given by God, especially before the child is born, is giving us clarity into the purpose of that child. So this son is going to save. This son is going to save. This is the Messiah. Verse 32, he will be great. He will be called son of the most high. So who is he going to be the son of the most high? Well, that's actually an old name for God. It means the, the, it's referring to God's all-powerful nature. So this son is not going to be the son of Joseph, if you will, really. It'll be like his stepfather in a way. He's called the son of God, you guys. This is really significant, and I think it's worth just the, the brief mentioning here. But flip to your right here in, in Luke chapter 3. When you get to the end of Luke chapter 3, or towards the end, you see this genealogy of Jesus Christ. And this genealogy is a little bit different than um, Matthew's, but this is looking at the, his earthly family heritage through the line of Joseph, okay? 
And what you see here is actually uh, some really interesting things because you see that Jesus, we're told at the beginning in, in verse 23, he's being the son as was supposed of Joseph. And then you see this ancestry. And look how it ends though in verse 38. What does it say? The son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Adam is the son of God, which is interesting because when you go back to the beginning of your Bible, you see this really striking thing happening in the pages of Genesis chapter 1, because no humans existed, but then God in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says what? Well, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Adam's a son of God. But then what happens once sin enters the world? The language actually shifts very subtly, but really profoundly. Because if you look in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, you might just want to mark that down. It's, it's giving the first lineage or, or, or whatever in, in the Bible, and it says, Adam, after he lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and named him Seth. So if Adam is son of God, sin enters the world, and from that point forward, things are different. Do you see the slight but profound change? Adam is a son of God, made in the image of God, after the likeness of God, that's what we see, but then after sin enters the world and corrupts Adam's nature, when he bears a son, we are told that Seth is made after the likeness of Adam. And then every person who's been born in this world since, that'd be you, is born in the likeness of Adam with a spoiled nature, with original sin, right? Until when? Until Jesus. Until Jesus. This is why the virgin birth is so critical. This is why it would change history. So that Jesus, when born, will not be in the likeness of Adam, but will be in the likeness of God. Do you see what's happening here? We have a second Adam coming. We have a, a new race, a new family. But what will the second Adam do? Uh, he's going to rule. He's going to rule. That's what we see here in this passage. He's going to be a king. We are told he will reign not just for a while. He's going to reign forever. Right? And then verse 33 just wants to double down on that in case you kind of like overstepped it a little bit or just kind of missed it, he says, this kingdom will never have an end, like never. Like, think of a time, he'll still be reigning, okay? Try to go crazy with it. He'll still be reigning, right? What an announcement to receive on a random day if you're Mary. Mary is going to carry in her womb the Son of God. What do you think her response was? Well, I think what even seems to be more miraculous than the fact that she's going to carry the Son of God in her womb to a degree is Mary's response, just think of it. What would you do if you were Mary? Just think about it. Like, put yourself there in the story. You see an angel. The angel's telling you some of these crazy things. If you're a guy, there's even more obstacles to get over here. But just imagine you are Mary, okay? What do you think? Well, if it were me, I'd probably be tempted to think that I'm feeling a bit under the weather, you know? Maybe I got food poisoning at Olive Garden this week or something. Right, I, need, I need to get some sleep, maybe. Or maybe I think I was sleeping and I need to... I need to wake up from my dream or something. Or I might think I'm hallucinating, going crazy, or that I, I really should be drinking more water or whatever it is that the internet tells me I need to be doing. But Mary, what's Mary doing? She just takes the message at face value. And she doesn't ask whether or not this is going to happen. She just asks how it's going to happen. She believes it's going to happen. She is, is curious how. That's her question. And it makes her very different than Zechariah. The this, this, this striking contrast between what we saw last week and this week is so 
Interesting, because Mary is a nobody from the middle of nowhere, and Zechariah is a somebody from a place that mattered. And yet, Mary has a simple, humble faith, while Zechariah, a man of God, struggles to believe. This is how she receives the message. She just says, okay, uh, how? And Gabriel says in verse 35, in short, well, God's going to do it. God's going to do it. And he uses this word overshadow, which is a really revealing word, because you see the same exact word used. You've got to understand, this part of the Bible, there's so many things that have been happening throughout the page of Scripture that are just landing right here. It's just like exploding with all this stuff that we've been told about from the very beginning of the pages of your Bible. And this word overshadowing is, is no different, because you see in Exodus chapter 40 at the tent of meeting, where a cloud, the presence of God, descends upon the cloud, the tent of meeting, and it overshadows the place. It's the same word. Mark chapter 9, the Mount of Transfiguration, when the cloud of God's presence just descends upon the mountain, it overshadows the mountains, the same word, right? It's a word that speaks of God's awesome presence, then although it's not the exact same word, you get the same idea in Genesis chapter 1, where you see the Spirit of God, what? Hovering over the waters before creation is born, right? Before things are created, right? Well, what's going to happen? God's hovering, that the Spirit will bring about the conception, and ultimately the Spirit's going to create a body for the eternal Son of God to take on human nature so that He might save us, right? Jesus' existence, you guys, think about it. It began outside of the world, outside of time, and He's entering into human history to take on our nature. The answer is that God is going to do it. This sending of Jesus into the world is entirely by the means of God's sovereign work. There is no human desire. There's no conjuring. There's no involvement of any kind of any person. No one was dreaming this up. I don't know if anybody even could dream this kind of stuff up. God just decided to do it, and he did it. He didn't adopt Jesus as his son. He sent him. Isaiah says that the son was given. So from the moment of conception, Jesus was and has always been the son of God. This is a miracle. I'll just say it that way. It's always interesting when we're showing our kids family photos from before they were born. And they'll look at a photo, maybe it has like sibling in it or something, and if they weren't in existence yet, they might say, Daddy, where was I? And I say, oh, you weren't born yet. And like every kid's brain, it's, they ask wonderful questions. They say, well, where was I before I was born? And you have to say, well, you didn't exist. You didn't exist. And that's a really weird thought, isn't it? but it's not the case with Jesus. And this is critical because in order for Jesus to be a true son, a second Adam, if you will, in order for him to truly save us and to be our mediator between God and man, this virgin birth must take place. This this actually makes it possible, you guys, to, to have a different category, right? It makes it possible for his nature to be fully divine and fully human. He is one undivided person possessing two natures. He is fully human, without the spoiled nature that all of us inherit from Adam. Is this yawnable stuff to you? I I beg you, if you give any thought to this, your mind will just wonder. Your heart will be filled with, what kind of God is this? The king is coming. And he's not just any old king, he's God. And yet he's man. Have you ever heard of a speech act 
theory? You heard of that before? It's where it's the idea of you say something and something new is created from it. We rarely have the opportunity to do this, except maybe when you're giving your vows. If I say, I do, I'm now married. Or if your boss says, you're fired, you lost your job, okay? There are a few things that can be said that just become a new reality. But with God, this is always the case. I can say a lot of things that never turn into reality. I have empty promises, if you will, that I can make. I can say things that will never be true. But with God, when he says something, it will happen. And that's what's happening here to Mary. And he says, God has spoken. Verse 37, nothing will be impossible with him. It doesn't matter what your categories are. This connects its echo actually to Sarah who's laughing outside of the tent when she learns in Genesis 18 that God's going to bring a child into her old age. And yet the angel says to her there, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's the same thing. This is a statement from God that we need to gravitate towards every day because I think if we're honest, we so often change out the world nothing with this thing. We say, yeah, a lot of things aren't impossible with God, but this thing is impossible for God. And, and you know what that is. I don't, I don't know what that is in your life right now, but, but you might exchange that nothing for this thing. But what's Mary's response? She doesn't say, yeah, except this thing, Lord. Remember, she's only said one thing this entire time. How? Her second response is what? Okay, well, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. It's a response of humble surrender. She's giving her life away, if you will. Don't miss this. She says no more than how, and then she says, let it be. Think about this. Whatever dreams she had for her life are going to be very different now. Right? Whether she wanted to live a quiet life in obscurity, she has to open her hands to that. Whether or not she wanted to go and do and be something else and go somewhere, whatever it was, she had to let go. This is going to change everything. If she wanted to become a certain person or do different things, in an instant, upon receiving this news that she will bear the Son of God into the world, the true, the final king, she says what? Let it be. Whatever she was tempted to white-knuckle grip in that moment, she immediately just let go of. It's a, a word of surrender. She's surrendering to God's will for her life, and she just, she just laid it down. How do you do that? How does Mary respond this way? I propose to you that she could only respond with this type of humble surrender if that's who she is, and if that's how she's daily living. It's like, it's like this, when every single morning it's been really cold lately, and, which I, I love how cold and dry, when it gets rainy, I don't want that, but cold and dry lately, it's been awesome. We get in the car, I take the kids to school in the morning, and every morning I turn on the car and the kids are complaining about how cold it is, like I am, just more internally, and and they're like, turn on the heat. And so I blast the heat. And what does it do? It, it blasts out cold air. Right? I can look down at, at the thermostat and it, it's set to hot air, but it's blowing out cold air, isn't it? My kids will say, we want hot air, you know, and it's, we go through this routine every morning. And I have to explain, although I don't know anything much about cars, I just know that the car has to warm up a bit, whatever that means. Right? The engine needs to warm up. And then once it warms up, it will actually spit out hot air, won't it? But it has to warm up first. It has to have that be a part of itself before it can do that. Mary's blowing hot air, right? Her heart's already warmed up with this sort of attitude in her life. That's the only way you respond in this way. She's warmed up with humble surrender in her own life. Without even knowing it, she's ready for this. She's not special, but she's available. 
What's coming out of her is what's inside of her. So history is being changed, whether Larry King, you and I want to believe it or not, the king is coming. And now what does Mary do? Well, she runs off to see if this sign that was given to her in verse 30, 36 that her aunt is pregnant is true. So she runs off to see her aunt in verse 39. And what does it say? In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah, greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in your womb, in my womb, leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Mary jets off to Judah from where she's located, from Nazareth. Nazareth, it's about an 80 to 100 mile hike. Okay, no cars. That'd be like you hitting the road today from Gresham and trying to get to Tillamook or something. Okay, that's how far it is. It's going to take you about three to five days. I know you think you could probably do it faster, but that's how long it's going to take you. She arrives. She enters the home where Zechariah and Elizabeth live, and she's seeking to greet Elizabeth. But there's a real shocking reversal of greeting here because it's not that Mary greets Elizabeth. And it's not even so much that Elizabeth greets Mary, but Elizabeth's baby that's just starting his third trimester greets Mary's baby, who's what, a couple days old in the womb? We literally have a, a play date going on in the womb. I don't even like play dates, but I'd be interested to be at this one, you know? Elizabeth says that when she heard Mary say, hello, Aunt Elizabeth, or whatever she said, John, who we were told last week, will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. John leaps for joy in her womb. Right? Even John the Baptist knows who Jesus is in his third trimester, in the womb. You see a fetus recognizing a fetus and experiencing joy. My mind is blown. How about yours? Again, Luke told us at the very beginning of his gospel that he has received all these testimonies from people, so we must understand here that he's probably gotten this testimony from Mary, and also keep in mind that Luke is a physician. So he knows that this is not some normal kick that someone just experiences while in the womb that we all get excited about or something. And this is the first time that John is meeting Jesus, the forerunner, the promised one. He's meeting the Messiah, but what's even more interesting to me actually is the response of Elizabeth. Remember, Elizabeth hasn't gotten a text. She hasn't gotten a phone call or an email or snail mail even. She has nothing that we should understand that she would have to suggest that she knows what's going on in Mary's life right now. But something is different. She just knows. She is filled with the Spirit of God, and she goes on this blessing rampage. She exclaims it loudly, it says, Mary, you are the most blessed among all women, and blessed is your child, the fruit of your womb. Right? Verse 45, then she says, blessed is she, referring to Mary, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She's doubly blessed. How does Elizabeth know that Mary believed this angel? Because she's coming to her to see the sign. That's how she knows. But then in humility, my goodness, Elizabeth says, 
that she feels humbled that her niece would visit her. Why? Because she thinks Mary's amazing? She's missed her? Because of who the baby is. Who does Elizabeth understand the baby to be? Without any seeming indication, Elizabeth knows who the baby in Mary's womb is, and what does she call the baby? Lord. Don't, don't miss the wonder of this. An old woman in the third trimester of her pregnancy with the final prophet who's going to make way for the Messiah calls Mary's fetus Lord. Do you see what kind of humility it would take to be someone in Elizabeth's state, recognizing a child in the beginning stages of the first trimester in the womb as Lord? Right? Jesus has yet to do anything and, and yet, he's being received by Elizabeth for who he is. He doesn't need to earn her trust or prove himself to her. He just, she just receives him as Lord because that's who he is. This is amazing, you guys. A barren woman and a teenage girl in the middle of nowhere town, and God is beginning to turn the world upside down. These are overlooked people. Do you, do you feel overlooked this morning? Is that where you feel like you are? What's well, the good news for you then? Because the king is coming, but he comes to the humble. He comes to the overlooked in the world. That's what we see here. What does Mary do in response to this blessing that she receives? Well, she sings a song. What does it say in verse 46? Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of, his, of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And verse 56 concludes with, and Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Guys, we just found out this is a musical. I'll be real with you. I don't really like musicals. And I learned why a few years ago, because every time I watched a musical, when the singing part would happen, I would just check out. And then the thing never made any sense to me. And then someone once told me, when people are singing, that's like the most important part. You're learning what's going on. And I was like, oh, that's probably why I don't like musicals. I still don't like musicals, even though I know that. But nonetheless, okay, this is a musical. We learn... And in fact, this is the first quote-unquote song in Luke's Christmas narrative. There's four of them. And historically, it's called the Magnificat. But it's actually important to realize here, just to be clear, Mary is just, um, she's kind of doing Hebrew karaoke. She's just singing the hits. That's what she's doing here. She's completely just stealing verses from the Old Testament when she hears about what's happening to her. And she's blessed by Elizabeth, she, she just wants to magnify and praise God, but what's com what comes out of her is not new words. She doesn't get all creative here, if you will. 
What comes out of her is old words. She knew her Bible, and knowing her Bible and trusting in the truth of the words prepared her for this moment. Let me just ask you, what did Mary have to go off of to believe God in this incredible moment? God's Word. What do you have to go off of? Exact same thing. It's incredible. Magnificat is, is, is what it's is known as. It's, it's Latin. It just means make great. And it comes from the first words in the song, magnify his name, make it great. It's God's name she's magnifying, not hers. So if you were tempted to elevate Mary as your hero, you're being pointed here to the true hero here. The whole song is about God's character and faithfulness, right? So we see here, but the verses we really need to look at in the time that we have is down in verses 49 through 55, because at the beginning part, she's magnifying God for how she has been seen, that she once who was overlooked, he says, has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She's praising God for her personal experience, but then that moves from a me to a we in the second part of the song in verses 49 through 55. And Mary sees, like we should, that this birth was not just for her, but this birth was for the world. See, if, if the incarnation, if Christmas this month hits you personally, that'll make you really grateful. But when you see it, the incarnation or Christmas, if you see this birth, if you see it on a worldwide scale this month, that'll make you worship. And that's what's happening here. Guys, we live in a me world. A me world is not the people that inherit the kingdom of God. We have a king coming, and the natural question that should arise in our minds that we begin to see here in verses 49 through the end is what kind of king will he be? In our existence with rulers and authorities or in history with kings, our human rulers rule in more selfish ways than we would like to think. They, they rule and think too much of themselves. And so naturally we worry when someone rules and gets too much power at their disposal. That's why we like the ideas of checks and balances. We tend to not trust people because we see what power does to people. It can corrupt us. That's our experience with it. And to top it off, our problem is that bad governments seem to go on for far too long and good governments never last. So this is our experience. And the question that we should be asking here is if a king is coming, what kind of king will this be with this power he has that's the power of God and his kingdom will never end? Will he rule selfishly? Will he wield his power for his own gain? Or will he use his power for justice? That's what we see. He will. Because what's he doing here in 50 through the end? He's bringing down the proud and he's raising up the humble. He's basically reversing the world system. God is the God of the humble. And it's in his power and strength that he acts on their behalf. He's coming to save them. And if you're humble this morning, if you're in a humble estate, and you want to receive him as king, then you can be sure he acts on your behalf. I say you can be sure because of the way the last part of this song is worded. Follow me just for a second, but this is really important. The tense of these verbs is really important. 
It's, it's the equivalent of a prophetic perfect in Hebrew, which means nothing to all of us except Josh Matthews probably. But nonetheless, it's described basically as if this future work is going to happen, but it's described as if it's already happened. That's the way she's singing this song. It's future work of God's son with certainty of past events. So Mary saw has already accomplished what God is going to do through Jesus. It's like saying, I'm, instead of go, saying, I'm going to go to the store today, I say, I went to the store today, but I didn't already go. You're like, well, that's weird. But it's like, I'm telling you, so con- I'm doing it, you know? I'm doing it. The promised Messiah has been announced from heaven. It's going to happen. And what God says happens. And what does it say is happen? It's going to happen. He has shown strength with his arm. 